Hey everyone, and welcome to the Joseph Wells Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Wells. This is the seventh episode of my series on national service, where I'll be exploring the idea from a variety of angles through a number of conversations with experts. Within the next month, I'll publish a long-form essay on the topic as part of David Perel's Rite of Passage Fellowship. I recently published a shorter piece introducing my thoughts on compulsory national service. Find it at the link in the show notes. My guest today is Yancey Strickler. Yancey is the founder and former CEO of Kickstarter. He's also the author of This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. Strickler's book transformed my thinking, so I was very excited for this conversation. Yancey and I talked about benefit corporations, bentoism, the 30-year theory of change, and much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Yancey Strickler, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation after reading your book and going through some of your work. So you are the co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter. Is that correct? Uh, that's right. That's right. Can you tell us what Kickstarter is and how it began? Kickstarter is a funding platform for creative projects. Um, you know, it, it launched April 28, 2009, so a little over 10 years ago. Um, and it, it's a way for creative people, musicians, filmmakers, writers, also restaurateurs, inventors, uh, to share new ideas with the world and to get funding and that critical early support you need to make an idea happen. Um, and so, you know, Kickstarter is, was pioneered crowdfunding. Um, there had been some one-off examples of crowdfunding before and, and like one or two platforms that have tried to do it in different ways. But um, really the model that we created, the visual language, everything about how it works um, has really defined uh, that whole industry. Um, and, you know, that, that journey started with uh, Perry Chen first having the idea for Kickstarter in 2002. He and I met in 2005. Um, and became co-founders. And then we met uh, Charles Adler shortly thereafter, and the three of us started it. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's a way for a creative person to get the funding they need for ideas, to not have to contort their ideas to what like the marketplace or an executive might want it to be. And, you know, and it just allows a far more diverse array of types of culture and sort of culture and projects and ideas to happen that um, don't need to produce any financial upside, right? These are just projects that are not about, Kickstarter products are not about starting a business, although they often lead to that. It's just, here's a thing that should exist. And so, yes, the Kickstarter, I think, is a very, it's just a very optimistic uh, product and project. And uh, yeah, and very proud of, of everything about it. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really important um, company, and so I, I just want to understand in a little bit more depth here. So it's kind of like a, a patron model. Say you're a writer and you want to write a book. You have some people who read your writing and enjoy your writing, and you ask them to um, contribute a certain amount of money so you can you can write this book. Is is that how an example would play out? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's you know, it, it's it's generally providing the early funding for ideas um, for a creator kind of the farther along they are in the process, the better their projects will be. So if you're, if you're someone saying, Hey, I really want to write a book, 
and I need some money to do that. I think you're, you're going to struggle to convince people. If you say I've written a book and I need money to print it and to send it to you and to like hire a professional editor, you know, then those are projects that people are excited to support. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's basically reaching out to your community. Um, and generally the people that do this, they're, they're creating projects that don't make sense under a traditional financial system. Like you wouldn't get a loan to do a project like this. You wouldn't get an investment. You generally need to either have, you need to either have that, just that excess money lying around or a rich relative. Um, And if you don't have that, then these kinds of projects tend to not happen. So Kickstarter just created an avenue for like not financially advantageous creative work um, to have a funding source. Because before that, you're looking at grants, loans, or just personal disposable income. What did you and your co-founders do that was unique that allowed Kickstarter to catch on and take off? Um, Well, I think... It starts with like nailing the model, you know, um, like it's a very dynamic form um, in that every project must must reach a funding goal or no money changes hands and there's a ticking clock. Um, And so there is an urgency. It's not uh, everyone is compelled to take action. It it makes it sort of game like. Um, And so that was interesting like that. Something like that hadn't really existed on the web before in that kind of form. and then I think the other thing is just our, the depth of our focus on uh, a specific community. You know, the three of us uh, are all, we're not business people, we're creative people, we're artists. And, and so there was just like a, a way of thinking about the platform, but also a community that we were specifically interested in serving, which is other creative people that, um, you know, I just think was, was a, was an audience that was being poorly served by the status quo and is an audience that the public is excited to help. Like we're excited to help creative things happen. You know, there's like a, it feels good. It creates good in the world. It makes you look good. Um, you know, it's a virtuous act and, and yeah, so I think like, but the, but the specific focus, you know, from the beginning, we saw that this model of, uh, collective funding around causes or ideas that you could use it, use this to buy Jenny a prom dress or to pay for someone's medical bills. Mm-hmm. We saw what we saw GoFundMe. We saw what you know GoFundMe came out a couple years uh, after Kickstarter was out. We like saw that that would happen, mm-hmm. um, but we explicitly decided that we didn't want that to be on Kickstarter, right? And that we wanted to create a a community in a space that was just artists, that was just creative people. Um, it was not using guilt to fund projects. It was all about like the possibilities of what can happen. Um, and, and it's really kind of creating a culture, right? Because like as a tool, as just like a, a way for money to, tr- to transact, that could take a lot of different forms. And so we were very focused on like, what is the cultural experience of this? And, um, and I think that may also be part of what helped it spread to the, to the wider public too, because it allows crowdfunding to be something positive. doesn't feel like you're being hit up for like money on the subway or something. Right. Um, and so then like, and then as it moves into charity and as it moves into, you know, medical bills, um, it's like a fairly established form of like, you know, this is, this is not you know, this is not, this is not fraudulent. This is like, this is a real way that people do things. Right. Right. 
Well, I think you guys nailed the model. And, and the other thing I really like about Kickstarter is that it is a benefit corporation and you uh, reincorporated in 2015 to have that designation. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. We were, um, you know, we very mission oriented from the start and, you know, really like Perry, Charles and I just on like a values level and kind of worldview level um, really always aligned very strongly um, and, and just like wanting to make something that mattered for the long term and that, you know, we would talk about like making the Green Bay Packers of the internet, like the, just the sort of like public trust sort of community owned project that just did what it's supposed to do. Kickstarter was set up as a C Corp, um, which we came to learn held that our ex- held that the company's responsibilities were to maximize shareholder value and that a lot of the ways that we that to us were natural ways to run the company, um, which like I don't, none of our investors would have had any issue with, uh, were things that from another perspective could be in violation of a law or like we could be sued over. And, you know, like our GC would remind, would tell us about these things. And, um, and then eventually we became aware of this new form called a public benefit corporation. And, and that this form, a company would have a legal document and a, a legal charter that would say that they had to balance that shareholder value with producing a positive benefit to society and that you then got to lay out what that benefit was and that you then were meant to report on this. And, um, and so that, you know, that really clicked, you know, that, that was exciting um, because instead of living within a structure where you um, are theoretically and maybe even literally like at odds with the expectations of that structure, uh, you know, that long-term, I don't think that that really works because while we may run the company in a certain way now, if the company lasts, you know, for multiple, for say beyond a generation, um, then you're just relying on like good people to run the company still. And I don't think that you can rely on that. Um, and so the PBC move let us write down what those things were, what, uh, what was most core to the company, and to make them legally binding. And shareholders had to vote to approve it. Um, and, and these include things like the company is prohibited from using legal but esoteric tax avoidance strategy, um, that the company won't cannot lobby for policies that benefit the corporation but do not benefit its users, um, donating profit after-tax profits to arts organizations uh, and organizations fighting inequality, and, and just sort of like laying out, here's, here's, here's how the company should run, here's what it means to be successful. And I was, I was CEO when that happened, and, um, and, and I felt a change in my job after we did it because these values and ideals um, had always been in the room, but they're like things you maybe run up against when making a decision. Like, oh, you don't want to, you don't want to, you run into these guardrails. You don't want to go beyond that point. But now that these values were part of this legal document that the company was, you know, was, was committing to, to creating, to manifesting, um, those things felt more central to the job and felt like, uh, you know, they shifted priorities a little bit like, oh, okay, so actually we should like this terms of use change actually is actually quite important. We shouldn't let that wait because to fulfill this commitment we've made, we need to do this or, you know, whatever those things might be. Um, so I found that to be 
a really positive experience and one that um, I just think aligns, you know, these systems work best when everyone's interests are aligned and, and Kickstarter's interests need to be aligned with the creative community, with its purpose, um, and not with just the fact that it's a commercially successful company and could be an even more commercially successful company if operated in different ways. Um, and so, yeah, so that happened, I guess, four or five years ago now. And, uh, and, and I'm very glad to see that the B Corporation movement has, has grown. You know, I saw just recently like our studio who make the great uh, graphing data software, they just converted to be a PBC. Oh, uh, so great. I think, I think that move is, is the future. And I think the larger future is that being a PBC is not the indie alt thing, but that's the normal thing. And it's actually that like the expectations of C Corps and even the structure of C Corps change to fulfill like what the PBC model is meant to do. Uh, but I think, I think that can happen. Yeah, I think you can too, and I, I think this is a good transition into your your book that you wrote um, called "This Could Be Our Future: A Manifesto for a More Generous World." And I thought this was a tremendous book. I know a lot of podcasters will interview authors without actually reading the book, but I just want to be perfectly clear: I read your book cover to cover. I took a bunch of notes on it, and it's actually changed my thinking quite a bit. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm almost 28 years old and nearly all the decisions I've made in my life have been made through this lens of financial maximization. And I guess that wasn't totally clear to me until I read your book and, and saw how you uh, compare and contrast that with values maximization. Now, I don't necessarily think that it's a bad thing, but I think I could use some values maximization to balance out my financial maximization mi mindset. Yeah. And what, one of the things that I have found interesting is that the more money I make, the more comfortable I am making decisions with a value maximization mindset. Mm -hmm. And so one quote in your book really stood out to me, where you talk about a time where you were giving a speech or a talk, and after the talk, this guy approached you, and he was the owner of a mid-sized construction company, and he said to you, it's funny. Before I made money, I was a diehard capitalist, but now that I've made money, I don't know what I am. And I kind of had that same feeling when I read your book. I'm sure this guy has been much more successful financially than I have, but even, even at the small level of financial success I've had, I feel more comfortable uh, making this, this transition. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that there's uh, a, a lot of truth there. I mean, I think that you're really talking about security um, and, and like money as a clear barometer of, of a certain kind of security, but one that has far reaching impact throughout our lives. Um, you know, here in the U S where we both live um, you have, you know, that security is really only attainable through money. Um, the state, the, the society itself provides very little security. Um, so here we have, we do have a kind of a scarcity mindset, I think around money, which leads us to, as I write in the book, um, think in terms of financial maximization, which is just to assume that the right choice in any decision is whichever option makes the most money. And that we just use that as our shorthand, um, for how to guide choices. And I think more collectively than individually, I think individually, we, we do have to wrestle with our values because, 
interactions with other people sort of force that to happen. Like the conflict of life does force that to happen. Um, but yeah, I think what you're talking about is sort of is a scarcity mindset and that what you're experiencing now maybe is more of an abundance mindset, which is that your first thought every day doesn't have to be, am I okay? Or like, I know I'm not okay and trying to get okay. But instead your thought can be, you know, how should I use myself? Like, what should I do? And I think the truth is that a lot, a lot more people can get to a place of abundance um, with a different structure of government, you know, with a different safety net, with a different sort of social contract. Um, and, you know, I think probably the most optimistic take of our current predicament is that maybe this will force the United States to ultimately get there, but who knows? Um, but that there is this, um, it is, it is harder when you're as to use the language I write about in the book, it is harder when your now me feels weak uh, to invest yourself into future me, uh, to invest yourself into to now us or future us into these other spaces where your life has an impact. Um, but I also think one other, one other sort of counterpoint to that, I would say, is that um, I don't think that if you don't have money, you are, uh, that those other parts of life are blocked off to you at all. I mean, I, I think about like, uh, I believe generally like the, there's a, a correlation, like a negative correlation between income and religious belief. Um, and uh, so if you're someone that doesn't have a lot that you're, you're, you know, your the materialistic part of your life is one of real pain. Um, then you need the, you need the now us of a congregation of a church. And you also need the vision of salvation of future me. You need, you need the afterlife. You need a sense of, how this, what this is adding up to. Uh, and that I actually think it's like with wealth and abundance and with the ability to become more materialistic, then we have the ability to become very self-indulgent in our now me and not think about the other parts of life as much. Um, so I think that there's like a number of paradoxes of how the money, how money can affect us. But I think generally the world we should want is one where everyone has a base of security on which then they can manifest whatever other values or things are important to them based, you know, after that. And probably the best version of the world uh, is something like that. Yeah, I, I like that explanation. And it kind of reminds me of this thing that Sebastian Younger talks about um, where he says, you know, the, our, our society, U.S. society is one of the wealthiest in the world. And you have people who drive into their cul-de-sac neighborhoods and up there along driveways and into their garage and close the garage door and go into the house and never have to interact with other people. And they've been tremendously successful financially, but then they get to middle age and realize that buying a bigger boat isn't going to make them happier, right? So they have this kind of like existential crisis where um, they are comfortable enough financially to think about um, future me and future us, but they've been in this financial maximization mindset for so long that they're not thinking about it. So that, that I think that's an interesting to think about thing to think yeah, about. I think, I think that there's an inflection point and maybe it's, maybe it's midlife crisis is the language we use for it. Um, but I think there's an inflection point where for men who are very now me driven, um, where men are confronted with 
the emptiness of the now me victory, right? They, they reached the apex, what is supposed to be the apex, and they discovered that they still feel all the feelings that they've been running from their whole life. And then that's when they have this crucible inflection point moment where they must realize and confront the fact that there's an us space, there's a collective space, there are others, there, and there are other aspects of yourself that you must grow. And, and so like there, we reach these moments where um, the healthy thing to do is to sort of face that conflict and then discover, discover that, you know, the richness of life on the other side and having a family is something that ideally makes that clear to you, but it's very, you know, you, there are a lot of asshole fathers and mothers in the world, right? Like it doesn't solve it. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so, but like you have these inflection points that will reveal to you what's beyond. Um, so I sort of think like life shows that to you on its own. Uh, but yeah, but there, but, but that again, that, and the, the, the hard part is that also we live in a country where, you know, a lot of people never reach that point. You know, 43% of Americans are financially, extremely financially insecure. So those are right. people that like never find that point of being able to take a breath. Sure. You know, sure. of being able to step back, you know, and, 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 in a, in a meaningful way without, you know, without great personal sacrifice. And, you know, so I think that, um, but I don't think, but again, I don't think the, I don't think the idea of like uh, becoming fully coherent with yourself, stepping into yourself, I don't think that is something that is uh, that only wealthy people can do. It's just that it, it it makes some parts of it easier for sure. Yeah, that that makes sense. So I'd like to back up a little bit. You know, we're talking about now me and now us, but some right, people right. probably don't have context there. So you're the creator of this value system called bentoism. Can you explain that and kind of talk through your bento box in a way that listeners can visualize it? Yeah. So, uh, so one day I was sitting here in my, uh, home office where I am right now. And I was doodling on a piece of paper and I drew like a, a simple graph and I drew like a hockey stick chart graph, mm -hmm. you know, or a, a line sloping up and to the right. And I, you know, and I thought this is a graph of self-interest and I was just doodling. And while doing that, um, I had this thought where I like extended out the X axis much farther because I thought, oh, the x-axis, that's measuring time. And that goes from now all the way into the future. And then the y-axis, which measures like money or popularity, whatever it is you're trying to grow, that's your self-interest. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that axis also keeps going because self-interest, as it grows, you go from me to us. Like you're, uh, the difference between like being a solo entrepreneur and having uh, employees is huge or being single and having a family is huge. Like as, a, as your self-interest grows, so do your Kind of responsibilities and suddenly this hockey stick chart now is like just a tiny corner of a much larger picture so i end up closing this hole and like making it into a box and drawing lines through it to make it just a simple two by two of four quadrants and i looked and realized i had four distinct spaces here there's now me where the hockey stick graph lived like what i want to need right now right that's, and then that's the, in the bottom left bottom left bottom left. And then the bottom right, I have future me, what the older, wiser version of me wants, uh, that person. Uh, in the top, top left, I have now us, now us, the people I need uh, that rely on me, that I rely on my family, my friends. And then the top right, 
we have future us, uh, my kids or everybody else's kids too. So just a very simple four by, you know, two by two quadrant thing. And, um, but I thought, oh, each of these spaces, right? Each of these spaces is a part of our self-interest because every choice I make, it doesn't just impact now me, it impacts my future me, it impacts like people around me, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, and I thought, what did I just draw? Like, what is this a picture of? And next to it, I wrote down, um, this is beyond near-term orientation, beyond near-term orientation. I looked at that and realized it was an acronym for BENTO. Mm. And I suddenly uh, thought about the BENTO box. Um, BENTO derives from a Japanese word meaning convenience. Uh, and because the BENTO has four compartments, it always has a, a variety of dishes, not too much of any one thing. And the BENTO honors a Japanese dieting philosophy called Hadahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. Oh, so I thought, wow. oh, this, is a, this is a bento box, but for our values and our self-interest, a way of not just optimizing, maximizing for right now, but to leave space for tomorrow to consider like really everywhere that we operate. Um, and so... To me, this is just like a, it's a, it's a conceptual framework, but it's just a very, very simple one um, that to me shows truly where our life is happening. Like we, we operate in this now me like glass phone booth world of like seeing about six inches in front of our faces. Um, but to me, this is a far more accurate reflection of, of where our lives are occurring. And and the possibilities that it creates and what it's, what it's done for me um, is it allows you to sort of interrogate each of these different parts of yourself. So I've been teaching workshops over the past year um, where just by leading people through very simple questions, they uh, find out what their sort of values and priorities are for now me, um, what their values and priorities are for future me, like who is it that they want to become uh, and that this becomes a kind of a, a simple compass to guide you. So, you know, I've gone through this process and, and, um, and so my bento, which is hanging here next to me in my, in my office, but in my now me box. So what is my now me about? When am I at my best? Uh, it's when I, the phrase I came up with, it's when I show people the matrix, when I'm talking about ideas, when I'm connecting like philosophy and pop culture and just sort of like revealing what's possible. I think that is my superpower. That's the thing I'm sort of best at. Um, my future me. So that older, wiser version of myself that wants me to live up to like my idealized self. What does that person tell me? It, that person tells me two things. It says create harmony, create harmony, always look to bring people together. Uh, I'm a child of divorce. So this is something that like a lot of my energy was put into from a young age. And then my other future me value is to don't sell out, to be true to my values, like lo being loyal is very important to me. Um, and so I could see how that's guided a lot of my choices and how when I feel good about a decision, it's when I'm doing things like that. When something feels wrong to me, it's when I'm not doing that. Right. Um, my now us values. So what is it that I, what's at the heart of my relationships with my friends? And to me that I, through this process, realize it's deep time and focus time. Like I, I, I'm someone that will spend, I can have a six hour conversation with you, never look at my phone once, hyper presence. Like I, I spend a intense week every year with several different friends. Um, but at the same time, you know, if one of those friends texts me, I might never write back. Like I'm a bad, <laughs> I'm also a bad, like 
small time friend, uh, but a great deep time friend. And then my future us, what is the world I want for my child, for everyone else's children? And there I said, it's to, to build a better matrix. It's not to imagine that the matrix doesn't exist of sort of defaults and ways our society operates, but to try to shift those in ways that are more beneficial. So, you know, I've written out these four values they are now very internalized to me. Um, and so when I make decisions, when I face these like fork in the road moments, I make them asking this. I use this as a structure. I ask each voice what it says, and I, I look for a yes or no answer. So one of the first times I had using this, um, one of the ways, uh, one of the things I, I do is I'll, I'll do a fair amount of public speaking, and I'll sometimes get asked to, to speak for uh, companies that I don't really like or mm-hmm. respect. Um, and so my default is always to say no to those things, and I, I've, never, I've never done things like that. Uh, but even when I get asked, I feel like irrash, strangely angry about even being invited. Um, and shortly after coming up with the bento, I got asked to do another one like that. And I was about to say no and then thought, oh, wait, I, I need to use my thing. I need to use my thing. So I asked my bento. Um, nor- now, again, normally I would say no to this. But so my now me says, uh, so I asked my now me, okay, so should I do a talk for this company I don't like? My now me value wants me to show people the matrix. So it says, yes, totally, you should do it. Like, that's what you're about. My now us wants deep time, focus time. And that says, you know, hour and a half to talk about ideas of people. Like, that seems on point. Like, yeah, sounds fine. Uh, my future us wants to build a better matrix. Says, well, actually, it's like you shouldn't be preaching to the choir to build a better matrix. You need to be in rooms like this. Like, this is your duty. So that's a definitely do it. And then I got to my future me box, which says, don't sell out. And that voice said, no, you're only doing this for the money. You're creating a convenient excuse for yourself. And suddenly this voice that had made me angry in the past and that had blocked me from this in the past, I could see it. I could see it for what it was. And I could recognize it as this voice was like a a bouncer standing outside the door, like protecting my values, just this big dude. And, but that I had the right, he was looking out for me. But I had the right to tap him on the shoulder and say, no, it's cool. I've got this. And I could only make that choice because I was able to see, like in a, in a really coherent way, what all was going on in me. And, and so like this internal dialogue could be revealed for being what it is. And it, it allowed me agency to sort of overrule my first instinct and to do so like feeling clean in my spirit uh, that I was actually making the right choice, even though I was like, going against something that, you know, made me angry before that. Right. Um, and so I think that these kinds of conversations are happening inside all of us, all of us. And, and we're kind of helpless in the face of them, right? There are these mental cycles we get in, the, our, our various phobias and, and anxieties that get played. Um, and, you know, we're, we could go to therapy, we can read. There's a lot, you know, you can get tools. And this is, this is another tool like that. Um, but I think one that is very simple and, and is really, I think what's different from this, um, from say like, I mean, I think like Freud's vision of the subconscious lines up with this very neatly, as does Maslow's hierarchy. Uh, but I think what's different about like this structure is that it's a, it's a user interface. It's a UI. It's, it's, an, it's, an, it's an operational tool um, that allows you as a person to act, to identify and to act on, on a consistent basis according to what are the the values and beliefs that are most important to you. And um, 
so I found it to be to be very powerful, and I, I've taught it, you know, face to face for you know probably about seven or eight hundred people over the last six months, um, all across the U.S. and in Europe, and uh, and and I've seen it, you know, I've I've seen some people, you know, get skeptical at like someone introducing a new ism into the world in 2020, which mm-hmm. like I totally get, I totally totally get, like. I, I feel that skepticism times a million, you know, I feel very naked, right. Standing out, even saying it. Um, but, but at the same time, like I, uh, I believe very strongly that this, like that this mental model of, of seeing our operational space, I think it's true. I think it's true. And I, and I think that this is, that this reveals that the ultimate goal is not to, um, you know, win it, whatever your corporate game is, the ultimate goal is not to be the top in your field of whatever is, it's not to amass the most coin. I think the ultimate goal is self-coherence. It's knowing what's going on with you and it's living in a way that you are manifesting that where you're just like rainbows are shooting off every part of your body all the time because you're just like such in a flow state. And that's possible. So I, I love this idea, and I, I think that too many people, particularly young people, are just kind of going through life on autopilot. And if you take something as simple as this bento box and, and look at each of the four components and spend five minutes listing out what's important to you in each section, now you have this, this thing that can guide your decisions. And rather than just floating around on autopilot and making uh, decisions that may not be consistent with your internal values... Um, you can, you can make, you can take agency over your life basically. Yeah. The, the single, you know, in a company or as a person, like the, the real, like the real leveling up comes with having a vision, vision for a place you want to be and just, and making decisions consistently in that direction. It's, it's, it's extremely hard to do. It's extremely hard to do because, um, interruptions and distractions and other opportunities and setbacks uh, and like crippling doubt. These things never stop happening. They never stop happening. And, and, and everyone's going to go through them. And so the superpower, the superpower is to be able to take those things and then still know how to operate towards your goal. And, and it's, again, it's, it's, it sounds very easy, but it's very hard to do. And, and like, look, look at, look at the wrench we, you know, the whole world is going through now of, of a pandemic, right? I mean, like we all have our stories of the things that are getting disrupted and many people that's going to mean losing their actual lives. And it's, uh, you know, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. And, and yet, and yet, even as we're locked in our homes and some of us turning into homeschool teachers suddenly, uh, which was not in my 2020 resolutions, but is happening now. <laughs> um, you know, you have to figure out, okay, well, who is, what is future me in a state of being locked in my house for a year? What, what, is, how, how am I working towards something other than right now? And while also, while also like recognizing the complete importance of right now, like to me, to me in a world where a world of quarantine, like we're experiencing now, now we are all bent to us because we are all forced. It's, it's easy when we're just like on the go and hitting the gym and then going to work and then doing our millionaire and seeing our girlfriend, boyfriend, like bouncing around. You can be like, 
you can be with people, but also like not having to face up to all the things that are inside of you. Sure. But I think in a moment like this, where everything is so compressed, where we're all under the same roof, like the fact that there is, it's not just now me is very apparent to all of us. And, and now I think in, in that kind of world, the challenge is how do you have a future me in mind? How, how do you have that mindset that isn't necessarily trying to be productive every day, but is trying to live up to what is most important for you? Right. Uh, yeah. I, I've been thinking about this a little bit and, and the way that I've thought about now me in the context of, of COVID-19 is number one, am I healthy? Number two, do I have food, shelter, um, the things that me and my family are going to need to get through this, right? And then future me, I'm looking at, okay, now I have a lot more time because I'm not commuting. I'm not leaving the house really at all. So maybe I can read more books or I can work on more podcasts or I can work on some of my writing. So that's kind of how I'm looking at future me. And then I think now us is something like, okay, I'm 28 years old. I have a pretty good immune system, um, but my grandparents and my girlfriend's grandparents probably shouldn't be out in public. So maybe I can run to the grocery store for them and, and, and get some food and leave it on their doorstep. So we don't have to interact. They don't have to go out, um, stuff like that. Um, how, do, how does future us play into that? Well, I mean, I think future us is, I mean, this is, the crazy thing about this specific epidemic is that future us is spared by it, right? I mean, the world is going to be remade by this, but the future us and the bento model is our children and children are spared this disease. So I think, I think the future us is about what's, what's after this. And, you know, and this is where I saw today, Denmark announced that it's putting its entire economy into a freezer for three months. Every business is going to be closed down, but the government's guaranteeing everyone's pay. And the idea is like, everything is just going to stop for three months. And then once this is over, we're all going to come back and it's just going to be the way it was again. Everyone has the same job, every, every same business in the same storefront, right? And, um, and so they're like, they're, they're, they are creating the certainty of future us. Um, and so I think that probably creates a very different environment here. Here, I think, I think it's going to be a real decimation of the life that we have now. And I think that's, that's a lot of the, a lot of the challenge uh, of the U S um, and, you know, part of it, of course, the U S is that it's just starting for us. Um, it hasn't even really started in a way. Um, but yeah, but I think the way you're thinking about now me and future me and all that, I, I think, you know, I think, I think that's on point. And, and, you know, I had a, I had sort of like a revelatory moment about five months ago that's really helped me for this for this period of time. Um, I was like, my book had just come out and I was sort of trapped in these internal feedback loops of wanting positive affirmation, wanting to self-promote. And it um, was just sort of getting stuck in this and had this flash of like, how about I use the bento to try to shift my mindset? And so it was like a Sunday morning and I just drew in my notebook a blank bento and above it, I wrote, how should I use my energy this week? And so when I looked at it, my now me voice, which is just like, what do I want right now? That was like self-promote, like do a live stream, do a giveaway, do a giveaway, like be as shameless as you can be. <laughs> uh, and like that voice was there. And I got to write down all the ideas that voice had, which kind of felt good to write them down. And then I asked my future me, well, what do you, what is, what do you think I should do this week? 
And future me is like, well, you should read this book that you really need to understand to be able to talk about this other thing that you want to talk about. And also there's this organization you're trying to hook up with. You need to figure out how to get to them, right? And then I asked my now us, what do you, what do you think I should do this week? And now us was like, well, today you have a day planned with your wife and your kids. So like, let's be ready for that. And also yesterday you talked to your friend and that like totally put you in a better mindset. So maybe you need to talk to a friend every day. So I like wrote that down. And my future us, what does my future us want me to do? And my future us said, why are you, why are you caring about your book? Like you already wrote the book. The whole idea of the book was to manifest these larger ideas. Like there's the work of ventuism to do. Like, mm-hmm. There's so much shit that has to be done. Why are you wasting your time on this? Right. It took me like five minutes to write all these things down. And then suddenly, like I, I could, I, I was able to see past where I was blocked by this loop. And also I was able to see like all the potential of this moment. And, and so what I ended up doing then is I made a to-do list based on that. I made an actual to-do list. So it's like, what are my priorities this week? And instead of my priority list just being like, you know, write a newsletter, do whatever like my very now me thinking was, my priority list was like, read, you know, read the first three chapters of this book, do a date day with your wife, like have a phone call with a friend every day, like, yes, send a newsletter, uh, also work on this bento idea. And like, and so I, I do that every week now. And, uh, and it allows me to really structure my time in a way that I'm, I'm, I think I'm meeting all these sorts of spaces and obligations in my life. And the, and the real benefit um, that I've experienced is, you know, when I was a CEO and certainly I was writing my book, you know, I'm so, my head is so in the work mm-hmm. that I, I, I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm with my family a lot, but there's some part of me that like, just can't wait to get back to my computer. Sure. You know, there's some part of me that's like, it's a little bit like an airport layover so I can get back to real work. Yeah. And, and after doing this, I just realized, no, this is, this is of absolutely equal importance. You know, this is like this, when I'm doing that, I am fulfilling, I'm fulfilling in the exact same way I'm fulfilling when I like I'm responding to email, I'm fulfilling in a way that is just as meaningful, more meaningful, in fact, but like I can really see it. And so I started viewing that time, not as like negative time or lost time, but value time of just a different sort. And, um, and so it sort of, obligations I have uh, turned from obligations to just like, to just, uh, just places I get to play and experience life. And, um, and so now, especially that we're all locked up, right. And like, we, we're living all parts of this, of our life, you know, these lives all the time uh, to really accept them and see them for the value that they bring and step into like who you are in those spaces. Right. You know, that, that's what makes this moment, uh, such a great opportunity, I think, for a lot of people, even as it's, you know, so terrifying in other ways. Sure. Yeah. And I think it's always good to look at every situation and try to find the positive in it and, and find the opportunity. And also, I think that's what's fantastic about the, the bento, bentoism, the bento box, that, that model is it's very dynamic. You know, it's, it can be extremely macro or extremely micro. It can be personal, professional however you want to use it, it, it really applies. And I think it just laser focuses what you should be thinking about and, and working on. But I want to kind of change gears here a little bit, um, go back to your book, because you told a lot of really interesting stories in your book that I think helped to illustrate your points. And one that really stood out to me was the Jeff Bezos handstand story. Can you tell that? Yeah. Bezos wrote a, uh, 
a sh- every year he writes a shareholder letter. I mean, I think all companies have to write shareholder letters to the public, mm-hmm. but his is always public and they're, they're always fascinating. And he wrote one, I guess it was three years ago now, where he wrote a, about a friend of his who wanted to learn how to do a perfect handstand. Um, she wanted to learn how to do like a perfect, perfect 10 handstand. And so she went to a handstand coach and that this handstand coach had told her uh, to, to learn how to do this. It's going to take like six months of daily practice. And, but the biggest mistake people make is they want to learn how to do a handstand and they think they're going to figure it out in two weeks. Mm-hmm. And so because they have unrealistic expectations, uh, they give up and they never, they never get what they're supposed to be. And so Bezos uses this to say, it's only when we have, you know, realistic expectations of what it's going to take to do something that it's possible, but like, but that anything is possible with the right expectations. Sure. Yeah. So I, I think this is a really good example to remember whether you're trying to lose weight and build muscle or learn how to play an instrument. I'm cert- certainly guilty of it there. Um, my guitar kind of sits in the corner <laughs> or, or even something as big as affect societal change. Um, I think it was Bill Gates who said, most people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. And I think you know, anytime you set out to do anything, to accomplish anything, I think it's important to keep that quote and the, the Jeff Bezos story in mind there. So in your book, you talk about the 30-year theory of change, which says that 30 years is the amount of time it takes for big trends to catch on. And I'm exploring the idea of compulsory national service as a means to improve unity in the United States, because I think disunity is a pretty big problem that we're facing right now. Um, This is a a project that I'm working on through David Perel's Rite of Passage Fellowship, and I'm publishing a long-form essay on the topic probably within the next month or so. What I'm trying to do is advocate for one year of compulsory service for every high school graduate in the United States. And... I agree with your 30-year theory and think we could definitely implement universal service over a 30-year period without making it compulsory. But I think the problem of disunity is too pressing to wait 30 years, so that's why I'm advocating for compulsory service. Do you think it's possible to bypass this 30-year time frame through legislation? Do you think that's a good idea, a bad idea? Well, I, you know, I think... Uh... Interesting. I mean, I, I think that there are certainly changes that happen faster. So the, the idea of the 30-year theory change is that um, it, part of it is an observation through history that, um, that others have made too, that, um, you know, that basically, like a, a great example is the example I give in the book of Joseph Lister, uh, who's the inventor of the antiseptic method. And uh, antiseptic method is the idea of washing your hands and sterilizing instruments before surgery. And uh, this guy, Joseph Lister, came up with this in 1864. He was basing a building on the work of Edgar Semmelweis and Louis Pasteur. Um, uh, but he was able to demonstrate that like surgery would be safer uh, by cleaning your hands and instruments, which people didn't do before. Um, but this idea was rejected by surgeons at the time. Um, because it challenged the existing orthodox way of view. And also, if you really think about it, what, what uh, Lister was saying was that these doctors were complicit in the deaths of their patients. At the time, the mortality rates of surgery were like 90%, 90%. Mm. Uh, and so he was saying, you are complicit in the deaths of your patients, which is like a, a very hard thing for someone to face up to. Right. 
And like we would have trouble facing up to that too. And so the, the norm around the use of the antiseptic method only ha- happened about 30 years later, by which point, uh, because what happened was that the, the new doctors coming up into the medical schools uh, were exposed to the idea of the antiseptic method and they could see the value of it. It made sense to them because they didn't feel judged by it. Uh, and so the, as those doctors started to step into positions of power, the norms changed. Like I think some doctors changed their minds, but I think most doctors probably did not change their minds. Right. And that change doesn't happen so much from people changing their minds as it does decision makers changing. And then just like, uh, I just think the defaults changing as a result of that. So for something like compulsory natural service, I mean, obviously if you made it a law, like then you would have succeeded your goal and you know, that could happen at any moment. I think it might be that the amount of time it takes to, for the public to be behind that, you know, I think that would be the question. What is, what is the path I can imagine the path to making people think public service is more important. Um, the path to making people think compulsory public service seems like a higher, a higher bar, but maybe it's not since it's like a more tangible thing. Um, but I think you'd have to build sort of the social case of like the people want this. Sure. Right? Yeah. Like, I, you know, and so I, I don't know what that, ar- like what that argument or what that path is for you. Happy to talk about it if you want to share how you're thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of a long path and it is certainly a hard sell because people don't like to be told what to do, especially with something this big. But the way that I'm thinking about it is kind of looking at um, humans' roots in tribes, right? And I think that's kind of the source of our disunity now because in modern society, nobody really lives in a tribe, but we've evolved to uh, want to be part of a tribe. So we manufacture these political tribes or racial tribes or uh, geographic tribes, whatever. And and then we identify strongly with those tribes and we want to see the people within those tribes succeed and we want to see the outgroups fail. So I think that causes a lot of clashing. So my idea with compulsory service is that we create this tribe that everyone belongs to first and foremost that supersedes um, everything else. And that tribe is I'm an American, and what makes me an American, part of what makes me an American, is that I've given a year of my life to my country to serve in uh, whatever capacity it may be. I mean, I I define it pretty loosely. Uh, It's certainly not just military service, Um, but it's, it's a shared suffering. It's a shared experience that everyone has, and it's kind of like a, like a uniting factor. Um, There are some statistics on, on people who want to go into Peace Corps and AmeriCorps and, and those kinds of things and are not able to because the funding is just not there. So I think there's some indication that there's a desire for it. Um, is that desire as big as I would like it to be? Probably not. But I think that uh, as it becomes normalized, there will be greater demand for it. And if there's funding for it, um, then demand will, will also increase, I think. Um, do you, What do you think about that? I mean, I think that, I think that that, I think in a I think in a high trust society it is the irony in a high trust society that's very possible mm-hmm. uh, because then people would believe in contributing to the collective. I think in a low trust society um, people are less willing to do that. But if, I agree with you that like if that happened it would have a positive impact. Right. Um, so this is why I think you have to have larger forces around it. Like I could see I could see like 
this plus UBI being an, uh, an interesting package mm-hmm. where you're sort of selling each other, hey, listen, yes, we're going to guarantee this income, but guess what? Everyone, all, everyone is also compelled to do a year on behalf of everyone. Right. Uh, and so like there's, this, you know, you give and you get. Like I could imagine that maybe being, but I think on its, I think it has to be tied to something else. Because I don't think like you can just, you can directly cure the disease in that kind of way exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's a, you need a larger wave. So I think it, I think it could piggyback on something. Um, but it's hard because there's just such low, there's such low trust. Um, I think that's, I think that's a fair criticism. And actually some of the other people that I'm working with in this fellowship are writing one guy, Oshan Jaro is writing about universal basic income. So it might be interesting at some point in the future to kind of collaborate and package our ideas together and, and see what, what comes from that. Um, you know, anybody, think, sorry, go ahead. Well, I just, you know, I think that, um, you know, I mean, there's just the, the U the U S model is just, um, as many people are writing, just all, all of its, all of its weaknesses are being exposed and will continue to be exposed. And, um, in a healthy moment that would, could inspire a great reset and a great repair um, in an unhealthy low trust moment that could inspire an abandonment and uh, devolution. Kind of like a catch 22 because it's at the moment of low trust that it's needed the most. Yeah. But, you know, I, I'm personally of the opinion that where we are now is also strategic for some people. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, if your desire is to make government so small, you can drown it in a bathtub that government continuing to be ineffective is by design. Mm -hmm. It's by design. It just simply supports the private markets. Right. Um, and, and so I think that because there is not a, um, true best effort in governance in America. Um, I think that, I think that's why we're in the place that we are. Um, not the only reason, but is a, is a big why. And, you know, like Denmark is putting its economy in the freezer for three months. UK is guaranteeing income for 80%. The United States, we're going to offer people like a $300 gift card to their GoFundMe. Right. You know, and that's like, and even then we're like, let's means test it and let's make sure, you know, let's, let's make sure everyone has to get a drug test before they get that too. Right. Right. And, and we're just going to, and that's, that's what's going to happen. And we're, yeah, it's, um, it's brutal. It's brutal. Interesting times for sure. Um, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this. Hopefully there's not too much bad. Um, but I'm generally optimistic. I think you are too. And I, I think we'll come out the other side of it. Um, well, I believe, you know, I believe, I believe deeply in, I believe deeply in, in people like I'm very optimistic about human beings and, um, and I am an optimist in general and I'm, you know, uh, and I, you know, there's, there's just, there's, there's just some long paths that we've been on that, 
you have to turn, you have to turn around. And a lot of what my book is, is arguing is that those things are possible. You have to have the right timeline. Um, and, and honestly, for the things I write about in the book, uh, I think that what's happening right now is kind of the timeline that would generate that. Cause I do yeah. think that, um, I think a lot works about the system we have now, but there's a lot that's not working. And, and these are not things that you can just simply patch up as you're going. Um, and so I think to get serious about the climate, to get serious about sort of the, the shared obligations and creating a, a strong social fabric, sort of seeing the value in that, investing in the value of that. Um, I think, unfortunately, you first have to experience how valuable it is by not having it. Yeah. When you let it atrophy and when you actively, you know, take shots at it. Right. The way our political leadership has done. Nancy, I think this is a good place to wrap up. But before we do, I'd like to ask you a question that I ask of uh, a lot of people who I think are smart or accomplished or whatever. Um, What are one or two books that have been most influential for you? Um, Well, I, you know, I, I, reading is my favorite activity. Um, so just, I'm always reading, uh, several things. Um, probably all time favorite books would be, uh, Dune, Frank Herbert. Um, you know, I would say uh, a book called not for bread alone, uh, by a Japanese businessman named Konosuke Matsushita. Um, that one's out of print, but you can find some copies on Amazon, but that's a really, when I was CEO of Kickstarter, that was a, a book that sort of like affirmed the values driven leadership path, but from someone who'd done it successfully, he created Panasonic. Um, and it's like real wisdom. That was like a real eye opening thing. Uh, and then just right now I'm reading the book Hyperion by Dan Simmons, which is a sci-fi book from 1990. That's just like outrageously creative. Like what a what a what a mind this person has. So I'm I'm right at the end of that right now. But I, I enjoy science fiction a lot as like a I basically read science fiction, economics, and philosophy. Uh, and that I don't know. It's a fun it's a fun nexus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a it's a u- unique combination, right? Um, is there anything else you'd like to add about service or financial maximization versus values or anything? No, I'll just self-promote. If that's yeah, right. go for it. Uh, yeah, no, I would just say the book is called This Could Be Our Future. Uh, you can find me at whystrickler.com. I have a newsletter, The Idea Space. That's pretty cool. And then, uh, but most importantly, if you're into Bentoism, there's a site, bentoism.org, B-E-N-T-O-I-S-M.org, uh, where you go through the process of building your bento. And it's super cool, very chill. Uh, I highly recommend it. And yeah, it, feel free to reach out if, if, if you go through that and, and enjoy it. Awesome. Yeah. I, I second everything that you said. Everybody needs to go and buy this book right now because it's fantastic and you'll be glad that you did. Yancy, thank you so much for making the time to come on. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me too. I really appreciate it. Thanks for spending your time listening to the show. If you'd like to discuss national service or anything else, shoot me a message on Twitter at Joseph C. Wells. I'd love to hear from you. And make sure to sign up for my newsletter at josephcwells.com so we can stay in touch. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.